This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Psalm 35. Contend, O Lord, for those with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up to help me. Draw the spear and the javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonour who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and confounded who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let ruin come on them unawares, and let the net that they hid ensnare them. Let them fall in it to their ruin. Then my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his deliverance. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and the needy from those who despoil them. You have seen, O Lord, do not be silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Wake up, bestow yourself for my defence, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say to themselves, Aha, we have our heart's desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed you up. Let all those who rejoice at my calamity be put to shame and confusion. Let those who exalt themselves against me be clothed with shame and dishonour. Let those who desire my vindication shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all day long. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning is from John, starting in chapter 15, verse 18, and ending in chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but they now have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word, word that it is written in the law. 
They hated me without a cause. Then the advocate comes, and I will send for you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father. He will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, in the hour that is coming, those who kill you will think that they are doing so. They, offer, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you, so that when, they, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. This is the word of the Lord. In my opinion, it's best to both set and have realistic expectations, capitalising on the hope that neither myself nor anyone else will be disappointed. So I like to assume that something is always going to be worse than what it might be. To use a contemporary example, please don't get your hopes up for an Australian Hamilton. Uh, Sydney is not Broadway. It's not going to be that great. Um, and I think it's also great often to set uh, realistic expectations about yourself, whether that's on a job application or your Christian Mingle bio. Uh, and with that introduction, I would also like to say that this sermon might be pretty average. You can't say you weren't warned. As a teacher, offering parents realistic expectations about their children is one of the most difficult things I have to do. Parents tend to assume that their children should be doing better in school than what they are, uh, and when that expectation isn't met, they can get angry and litigious. So making sure you communicate early on that their little darling is more likely to get a C uh, helps the parents not be shocked when they don't get an A and it's a lot kinder to the child. I think we all know the pain of having unrealistic expectations for something, even when we don't have children, and the dismay of feeling let down, the heartbreak of hope disappointed. It sends us scrambling to readjust, to try and make the best of something, or sometimes when our expectation isn't met, we just bail. I say this because in John 15 and 16, Jesus sets us some realistic expectations for the Christian life because he doesn't want us to give up. And what realistic expectations of the Christian life does Jesus offer? Starting in at verse 8, he tells us that the world might hate us. So I'm going to go with quite low expectations then. Uh, I was recently impaneled on a jury, and one thing the judge tells you when this process is happening is that if you're challenged, if they don't want you on their jury, you shouldn't take it personally. And here, Jesus says something similar. Don't take it personally. The world doesn't hate Christians because of who they are. It hates Christians because of Jesus. The world challenges Christians when they reflect the light of Christ. And we know this is about Jesus because they hated Jesus first. And in the Gospels, we have so many examples of people hating Jesus. Think of all the stories where Jesus heals someone or preaches light and truth and hope, and the story ends with, but the religious leaders were looking for a way to kill him. They are a constant ominous force in the background of the Gospels that leads ultimately to Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Which, of course, leads to the question of why does the world hate Jesus? And John's Gospel, over and over again, explores the theme of Jesus as the light of the world. And so the reason John gives us for the world hating Jesus is that he shines a light on darkness. 
and when light is shone in dark places, so often there is a reflex to cover and hide, rather than allow it to expose what is shameful. And we know this from when abuse or scandal is covered up by those in power, or any time someone tries to make something they did appear more palatable or reasonable than it actually is. People react instinctively to cover themselves in darkness. As Christians, we know that the light is actually a good thing. We see it shine on ourselves and we allow its truth to be a way to stop fighting or pretending that we are doing okay. We allow it to admit that we are not. We feel its condemnation and accept that is our reality. That we are people who, as the prayer of confession puts it, have erred and strayed from God's ways like lost sheep, who have followed the devices and desires of our own hearts who have left undone what we ought to have done and done what we ought not to have done. We accept these realities as true about ourselves. Which means when we see the light fall on our own darkness, whether as individuals or a community, we should welcome its light, not retreat from hard truths. Because we have a pretty good idea that we are all pretty broken. And so rather than race to cover up, we need to face what we have done whether by omission or commission, whether by ourselves or part of a group, whether intentionally or not, we should allow light to expose our darkness. Sometimes we are tempted to think like the world, to race from the light by seeking further darkness. But we know from the prologue of John's Gospel that this won't work. Darkness cannot overcome the light. And we also know that because of Christ's death, we don't experience the condemnation for our own darkness, but rather we experience Christ's grace. Our understanding of the cross means that when we face the reality of our own sin, we are able to experience grace upon grace. But for those who have not accepted God's gift of forgiveness, when they find themselves confronted with him in reality, not just vague moral teacher Jesus, but when actually confronted with his message of sin, they have no choice but to hate Jesus because his deeds expose their darkness as actual darkness. It shows them to be evil, and people don't want to be thought of as evil. Um, and this seems to be a human condition, not something that's changed over the last 2,000 years. People don't love feeling shame, even when shame is the right response for their behaviour. And they don't want to have to face the consequences for what they have done. They'd rather get on the offence and the outward attack rather than come to terms with their inward reality. So we see in verse 19 that for us, if we acted like the world, then the world would accept us. We wouldn't challenge them. We wouldn't make them uncomfortable. But Jesus has chosen us out of the world. That is, he shows them what they are like and the way out of judgment is for those who... Oh, sorry. Uh, Jesus has chosen us out of the world. He brought us onto his team to be one of his people. And now the church provides a measure and a message by which sin is revealed. In verse 22, Jesus explores some more detail about why people hate him. And again, we read it is because he reveals sin in people. Jesus is both the one who judges the world... That is, he shows them what they are like, but he is also the way out of that judgment for those who love him. There are two options to receive from Jesus, either justice and wrath or mercy and grace. And having come this far, I want to offer a clarification. This passage says that the world will hate Christians when they act and speak in ways that reveal the world's darkness. 
It doesn't say that the world will hate Christians when they demean the humanity of others, when they use their faith as an excuse not to care, when they prioritise rule-keeping over love, and when they act in rude, selfish and thoughtless ways, or when they are jerks. Indeed, we could say it would be right for people to hate us if we see them as evangelism quotas to be met, alternative ideas to be shut down, or dispensable in the face of our agenda. We cannot use this passage to justify acts that are indeed heartless and cruel to anyone and say that's okay because Jesus said that the world will hate us. In my job, I often meet uh, parents who are sceptical about the place and value of religious education in schools, and when I talk to them, so often I discover the reason is they had truly horrible experiences of the subject or of Christianity in schools themselves. Some of the stories I hear really want to make me cry, and that's minor compared to some of the major injustices perpetrated throughout history uh, and today in the name of the church. But there are people who hate Jesus, and by extension Christians, because they genuinely hate the gospel. And when these people hate us, turn on us, malign us, Jesus tells us that we should not be surprised. We're not greater than him, and people hated him. We stand in a long tradition of prophets who are struck, imprisoned, starved, disciples who are killed for their faith, and martyrs throughout all of church history, including people like Cecilia, who converted 400 people before she was martyred in the year 200. Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for writing the Bible in English before the Protestant Reformation in England. Madeleine of Nagasaki, who was tortured to death in 17th century Japan when she refused to renounce her Christian faith. And they are three names, but there are countless Christians whose names are not recorded in history, but whose stories and injustices are known and recalled to God. And so many of these Christians have shown us through the words and actions that because any hate we face, and because any hate we face comes because our attitudes and words are Christ-like, our response to it should be Christ-like too. So when the haters going to hate, 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 our response should not be to shake it off, but rather to respond with loving kindness. Thanks. <laughs> Very specific joke there. Um, Christians are called to love the world like God did, and it should not surprise us when the world can only respond with evil. But it does not negate our call to love. Indeed, to love our enemies. In Luke 6, Jesus tells us that we are blessed when the world hates us, excludes us, insults us because of Christ, and we hold fast to that blessing and respond in love. Now, if you're the kind of person who notices details and you've had your coffee this morning, you may have noticed there is a similarity between verse 25 and Psalm 31, which was our Old Testament reading. They both use that phrase, they hated me without cause. And by sneaking the psalm in here, Jesus clues us in that the religious leaders are actually the ones who should recognize him. The people who clearly should have known better, who should have recognized God in flesh, who, uh, when he was there in front of them doing signs and wonders, they are the ones who should have known that God himself has come, that God was present among them. And yet, their pride and sin blinds them to the truth. So far, this all sounds pretty depressing, um, and that's what I said about having realistic expectations. Jesus says clearly in uh, chapter 16 of John that in this world, you will have trouble. 
and we should expect that people hate us and the message that we love. But at the same time, we need to remember that any persecution or hatred we may experience here in Australia is nothing in comparison to the places where Christianity is illegal, where Christians are sent to prison camps, cut off from their families, unable to receive social services, and are killed for their faith. Tens of thousands of Christians are killed every year because they love Jesus. And this passage should inspire us to pray for the persecuted church. And I commend to you the work of Open Doors if you're seeking to learn more about, pray for, and support those who are killed for loving Jesus. But also, Jesus doesn't only leave the disciples with the hate they should expect. He also lets them know about the resources he will give them to meet the challenge. And particularly the Spirit, who is referred to in this passage as the Advocate, who will be with the disciples, who will make his home in them, and be for them a helper, a guide, and a comforter. But importantly in this passage, he will testify to Jesus even when the disciples don't have the words or the abilities themselves. And the Spirit has a special role of doing this for the disciples because the Advocate will assist them in writing the actual Gospels, enabling them to recall and record the words of Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus alludes to this, that the disciples will recall Jesus, record Jesus' words because he has been with them from the beginning which in turn gives us confidence that what is written here in the Gospel of John is indeed what Jesus said, because we know it's not from human origin, but from the Spirit of God. But the Spirit doesn't only facilitate and support the disciples' witness, it actually provides the disciples with its own witness. In Mark 13, Jesus teaches us that when they bring you to trial, deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you will say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And there are so many examples in Scripture where the Spirit provides his words even when people don't have their own. We think of Exodus 4, in which God promises to speak through Moses. In Jeremiah, when Jeremiah complains that he's too young, and God says, I will give you the words when Stephen and the other disciples speak in the power of the Spirit in Acts. And God even speaks through a donkey in Numbers 22. When God wants to speak by his Spirit, he will, and it doesn't depend on our eloquence or bravery at all. And the Holy Spirit isn't just a vague idea or of a warm feeling. He is actually God come to live and dwell in each of us. We've heard in previous sermons in this series that God invites us to abide in him to be part of his eternal relationship of love with the Father. And in giving this, us the Spirit, he makes this possible. And the Spirit has real power for change and action in our lives. Romans 8.11 reminds us that the Spirit who dwells in us is the one who raised Christ from the dead. That is real power. And if we prayerfully reflect, we may find that we know that the Spirit is in work in us because we have been transformed by the Spirit since we first accepted Christ. The beginning of chapter 16, Jesus then returns to why he's told the disciples all this. It's so they won't fall away. He tells the disciples to expect a difficulty in this life because they follow him and warns them of two specific dangers, martyrdom and excommunication. And these are not small things. The first one is obviously literally being killed for what you believe. In the early years of Christianity, this could be by stoning to death or being thrown to the lions. 
And we think of stories of early saints like Perpetua and Felicitas, who were taken from the young children and thrown into the gladiatorial arena. Perpetua's father encouraged her to renounce her faith and save her life. But Perpetua's response was to say to her father, do you see this vase here? He was like, yes, I see the vase. She said, could it be called anything by the name of what it is? He said, no. She said, well, neither can I be called by anything by what, than what I am, a Christian. And we went with that conviction to her death. Excommunication refers to the disciples being evicted from the Jewish community, to which they still identified. Remember, the first Christians saw themselves as true Jews. And so excommunication meant the emotional turmoil of being told you no longer belong to God's people, being cut from your culture, your identity, your network of relationships, your friends, and your social security in times of hardship. And in the final verse in our passage for today, Jesus is telling the disciples, again, I'm telling you these things, so when they happen, you will remember that I told them to you which I think in part reinforces the expectations they should have, but it also reminds them that they belong to a bigger picture, uh, one in which there are a whole lot of haters, yes, but also one in which there is a God who is completely in control. Because whilst I said I was a fan of realistic expectations and people will pour on scorn, dismissal and hatred because of our faith, that's only a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the Christian life. And if this is your first Sunday in church, please know that the reason that we come to follow this God uh, is so much greater uh, than this little section of the Bible. Because we worship a God who knows that these things will happen before they do. A God who has created and predestined us to, into his kingdom. A God who raised Jesus from the dead and who in doing so proved that he is stronger than any other force or power. A God for whom death, that final enemy, has no power. It's been flattened in front of him. So death for the Christian is not frightening because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. As Roman teaches us, neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is impossible to have realistic expectations about the love of God for us because they are so much bigger and so much more wonderful than anything we could possibly imagine. And this brings me to my first of two tips for dealing with hatred. And I want to preface this by saying this passage talks about the difficulties that will come from being hated because we are Christians and how this might cause us to question God. But I think there's also a wider scope that is helpful for us here. Because I think we're often tempted to fall into the trap of thinking that because we are Christians, our lives should somehow be easier and less disappointing than they are. But at no point does God promise us freedom from life's troubles and trials. In fact, he tells us that in this world we will have trouble. So whilst my tips here are directed to, toward how to cling on to God in the face of persecution, I think they hold on up for clinging on to God no matter what trouble we are faced with today. And that's all we need, faith for today. In a sermon in 1938, Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was killed for his faith, said that we cannot bank faith for the future, but we can have enough faith to last through today. And that's all God asks from us. 
So if God is more powerful than anything else, if death is not our worst enemy, and nothing that anyone can do can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that is a truth to keep close at hand. And there's no better way to do that than by reading your Bible, by yourself, with others, in audio form, via email. It doesn't matter how you're receiving God's word, but if you're not anchoring your identity in the bigger picture that it offers you, then you'll struggle when struggles arise. And secondly, remember you have the spirit living in you, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Jesus reminds us that in this passage, that spirit is our advocate who testifies to God on our behalf. And when life is hard, that spirit is there to point us back to the truth. When we recognize him at work, when others point him out to us, when we focus on him and his action, we have greater access to that resource. Like most people who live in the eastern suburbs, I receive a lot of my advice for how to live my best life from my spin instructor. (laughs) And she likes to tell me, or more specifically to yell at me, uh, that the things I focus on will become bigger. If you focus on the pain, the pain is going to grow, which is limited life advice at best. But I do think it reminds us here that God has suffused his creation with goodness and that even at the darkest of times, he is at work. The Ignatian practice of prayer asks at the end of the day to pause and prayerfully reflect through your day. How did you see the Spirit at work? Where did you experience grace? Where did you see the goodness of God? In his creation, in his word, in other people. If you ignore the Spirit, you'll see the darkness as so much stronger. Look for where God is at work in you, in others. Take time to do that. Celebrate it. Share it with others. Remember that for every challenge God has given you, he has given you in his resources, in his spirit, in his word, and through the church, everything you need to meet it. This passage reminds us that we will sometimes face hardship in the Christian life because we are Christians. But we know also that sometimes we will face hardship in the Christian life because we are humans. But this should not be a source of anxiety, but it should lead us to compassion, prayer, and humble service of those who seek to hurt us. And we can do this because we have the advocate, the spirit who is at work in us, and because we know that the battle is already won and Jesus has been victorious. I've said twice in this sermon that Jesus teaches us that in this world we will have trouble, but that's not the end of the verse. John 16, 33. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.